0: week on Worldview, as the West announces more sanctions and decouples from Russia, should India brace for impact? Hello and welcome to Worldview at the Hindu, with me, Sahasini Heather. The American people will deal another powerful blow to Putin's war machine. The UK is out in front, we've sanctioned 275 individuals already. Now, since February 21st, when Russian President Vladimir Putin first announced the recognition of sovereignty for two Ukraine states, Donetsk and Luhansk, and then on February 24th, when he announced military operations on Ukraine, a number of countries have announced a massive list of sanctions against Russia. These are aimed at isolating the Russian economy, crushing the Russian economy, and cutting off their financial connections to the world entirely. So let's just take a quick look at which countries are part of the sanctions regime, because remember, it's not a United Nations sanction. These are unilateral sanctions, but a large part of the Western world, a large part of the developed world, in fact, is is in fact part of the sanctions regime. So there's the United States that's put these far-reaching sanctions, Canada, then across the Atlantic, of course, the entire European Union, 28 countries, United Kingdom, other non eu but European countries like Switzerland have joined in as well, Australia across the way. And then Japan joined G7 countries for sanctions. Singapore, a late entrant, also has announced sanctions. And then Taiwan, which is not recognized by many countries, itself has, in fact, put out a list of sanctions joining the US, the EU, and others. So if you look at the map and you look at each of those countries putting out those official declarations, uh, you can see just where the sanctions regime against Russia is coming from. But let's take a closer look now at The measures. When we say sanctions, what exactly do these sanctions mean? And you can bring out a paper and pen because this is a fairly long list of ways in which these countries are now looking uh, to penalize Russia. Some of those measures, I should tell you, are official, some of them are non official, some are what are called self sanctions when companies or entities decide themselves uh, to stop dealing with a country. The U.S. and the EU, remember, already had a number of sanctions in place because of 2014 and Russia's annexation of Crimea at that time. Uh, but the current round of sanctions is by no means, you know, has been seen before. It's unprecedented, bigger than ever before, as one would put it. So the first is economic sanctions on banks. Four major Russian banks have made it to everybody's list, about a dozen others can no longer be used by all those other countries for transactions. The European Union, of course, notably excluded a few banks, like Gazprom Bank, that are used for energy trade. I will tell you more about that, but the US and UK have been firm on these banks as well. The second, this was the big one, the exclusion from the global banking messaging system called SWIFT. This has been banned for seven Russian banks. It means that Russian banks will be disconnected from banks in all other countries. Then there is the ban on trade and economic relations, particularly with Donetsk and Luhansk. And it has there in the past as well or with Crimea. Asset freezes. This is the fourth type of sanctioned asset freezes. against, it we said Putin, Lavrov, members of the Russian parliament of Duma and members of the government as well. The fifth is a ban on financial services to designated Russian companies. So there are many Russian private companies that are seen as Supporting the government and those have been banned as well from accessing international financial services. there's the sixth is the ban on overflight of European airspace to begin with access to Russian planes into Western airports. This is clearly going to mean that very little travel in and out of Russia will actually be allowed. The seventh is the suspension of broadcast licenses. Now this is an interesting one, given that these countries see themselves as the Western liberal order. As well, they've actually banned media. State-owned Russian media, they say, which is Russia Today and Sputnik. But then we've seen cable operators dropping Russian channels in many countries. IT America as well has closed down on its own. Uh, The eighth is a ban on cryptocurrency transactions and what are called non-fungible tokens, NFTs. Uh, This was seen as one way Russia would work around the international sanctions. But these remain a very hard-to-implement ban. It is there on paper, however. And then the U.S. announced a ban of all oil and energy imports from Russia. Now, this is a big one. Remember, while the U.S. itself is now energy self-sufficient, European countries, especially you heard a lot from Germany on this, they are not, and they didn't join this particular ban. They have, however, said that they will try and reduce their dependency on Russian oil, and they have abandoned the Nord Stream 2 pipeline project with Russia. Uh, energy companies, Shell and BP and other international energy companies have also said that they are withdrawing from Russian business and from crude oil purchases almost immediately. The 10, and these, as I said, are self-sanctions, autonomous decisions. Many US companies in particular that are sensitive to public criticism in their countries, like McDonald's, Starbucks, Coca-Cola, Pepsi, also MasterCard, Visa, American Express. In fact, about 40 companies in all are either exiting Russia, or are considering it right now. The 11th were sanctions, not just against Russia, but against Belarus as well. for supporting Russian military actions. And so Belarus has come under a new slew of sanctions in the past few weeks. And the 12th and the last. And this is, in a way, very interesting. These are the social and cultural sanctions, if you like, or a deep of uh, in the cultural sphere. Although EU leaders have said consistently they are not against Russians. It is clear that Russians in their countries are now facing the brunt of the anger against Mr. Putin. You saw the Munich Philharmonic, for example, firing its chief conductor, Valery Gergiev, and New York's Metropolitan Opera letting Russian soprano Anna Netrebko go. We understand in Canada as well, a pianist wasn't allowed to perform. The Bolshoi Ballet's performances in London and Madrid have been cancelled as well because these were seen as not critical of the Russian actions. Put simply, Russia is now the world's most sanctioned country with more than 5,300 different sanctions being put on Russia since uh, in the last two decades. Uh, This is more than countries like Iran, Syria, North Korea, Cuba, other countries that are on world sanction lists or for different countries. The hope is, of course, to put enough pressure on Russia to immediately stop its bombing of Ukraine, Withdraw troops, but the impact of the scale of decoupling is not short term, it will be long lasting. And just take a look at where all we can see the impact. Of course, the intended impact is on the Russian economy, and we've already seen the GDP estimates come down, the stock exchange frozen, the ruble has dropped 30% against the dollar, inflation in Russia rising to 9% and over that. The second is to the global oil and gas market. The international market has been on fire, it's thrown into a tizzy went up, went down, but it did hit a high of $139 a barrel at one point. Overall prices have jumped more than 30% since Feb 24. Now remember, Russia produces about 12% of the world's oil, about 16% of the world's natural gas. It is the world's largest oil exporter. About 7 million barrels of crude and petroleum products a day, uh, and a majority of that was going to countries that now support sanctions. So you can imagine the impact of both in Russia and outside of it. Agricultural exports. Russia is a major exporter, but then Ukraine, this is something not looked at so closely, supplies about 12% of the global wheat exports, 13% of corn exports. And now the world is going to have to find alternatives, at least in the short term. Then there's metals and mineral supplies. Remember, 40% of the world's supply of palladium and about 70% of the global supply of neon comes from Russia and Ukraine respectively. These are very much needed the semiconductor chips, and you'll hear much more about these metals in the next few months. And then there is, of course, defense exports. This is something you know well in India. Russia is the world's second largest defense hardware exporter, second only to the United States. It accounts for 20% of global weapon sales and it sells to more than 40 countries in all. So when you look at this swathe of sanctions and the kind of impact they're going to have, in what ways must India really embrace? Or impact. And we're going to look at some of the areas of impact. There will be many more. To begin with, of course, there is the economic impact for India. This is what the Modi government has to focus on. To begin with, the price of oil will go up. Inflation and food prices have already been soaring for some time. With state elections over, the Modi government is expected to begin raising oil prices once again. The overall domestic economy will be hit by this consumer sentiment in response. In particular, remember the U.S., Is banned Russian oil and is depending on its own reserves. So U.S. oil will be more scarce for India. So we will have to look for more alternatives. India doesn't actually get much of its energy from Russia at present, but will Russia put so many discounts and tempt New Delhi with that? That's one question. Uh, What would be the cost of buying Russian oil at this time in terms of other countries? Remember when the U.S. was, in fact, sanctioning Iran, Some years ago, they were able to actually, the Trump administration succeeded in getting the Modi administration to agree to stop oil imports from Iran. Is that going to happen now? Because India lost quite a lot of money on that decision. So that becomes another question. Then the second impact that India has to brace for is the uncertainty. We've already seen the rupee crash to its lowest ever, more than 77 rupees to the dollar. This is going to make imports more expensive. However, India's non-weapon non-oil trade with Russia is quite small. It's about one percent of India's trading oil, and that is not expected to affect India too much. Third area is citizens, and now that the government has helped facilitate the return of about 20,000 Indians from Ukraine, let's not forget. there are still about 15,000 Indians in Russia as well. Any impact uh, either of India's foreign policy choices or of the Russian domestic situation during this conflict will really be felt by them. Then there is India's choice on sanctions that it really has to look at more closely. India says we don't accept unilateral sanctions, but when they are so far far wide ranging, you have to look at the strategic costs of the sanctions regime. Is the world going to be divided between those who follow sanctions and those who don't? A dollar world for some transactions, a non-dollar world for other transactions, a Swiss bank Transaction world and one which uses others like China, CIPS, and the use of the RMNB, the RMB for trade. India, remember, has already used banks and rupee ruble trade to pay its advance payments on the S-400 missile system. So is this going to be the modus operandi? But as we said, it's not just about the economics. There is also the strategic cost. And I mentioned S-400, but we really dealt enough with the U.S.'s choices on S-400 Those related to old Katsa sanctions, what will the US do now if India refuses to accept the new sanctions? Given 60% of India's military hardware is from Russia, it needs spare parts from sanctioned entities. Given that there are more deals in the pipeline with Russia, include those that require Russian investment in India, like the one for rifle production in Uttar Pradesh. And most importantly, that India's most salient defense export at present. The BrahMos missile uh, just sold to the Philippines is also done in collaboration with Russia. Can India walk away from all of that? Or is it going to face costs if it continues? Then there is a fact that with the West making it clear that this is a with us or against us type of situation. They want to go after not only Russia, but anyone who supports Russia. Which way will India go on the multilateral stage? On a a previous Worldview episode, we spoke about the impact of India's abstentions at the United Nations. So far, remember, India has abstained on three UN Security Council votes, two UN General Assembly votes, two votes at the Human Rights Council, one at the International Atomic Energy Agency. So is there going to be a cost for this, given that European countries certainly, and we've heard from ambassadors here, Uh, saying that India's abstention is not neutrality. It is being seen as support for Russia. And then the question of with Russia getting more and more cornered, can India actually count on Russia to do the right thing, to have its back in its dealings with India's adversaries, like China and now with Pakistan? This is again another question many in Delhi are grappling with. And then the opposite side, with the US, EU, UK, more focused on the war with Russia, how much space will they have for cooperation in the Indo-Pacific and the threat of China. President Biden held a Quad summit, the EU held an Indo-Pacific ministerial last week to make the point that they were still focusing on the Indo-Pacific and ended up really putting discussions on Russia's war in Ukraine at the top of the agenda. So uh, that pretty much tells you what that dilemma is. Now clearly the new sanctions that have been unveiled by the West are not just punitive measures. They are aimed at bringing down a new version of the Iron Curtain that cut Russia and its allies from the West and its allies for four decades. India's choices were actually easier then, as the world was not as interconnected. But the question is, if this continues, can India continue to brave Western censure, or will it need to revisit its traditional defense and strategic dependence and partnership with Russia? So that's a lot to chew on, and we've got some reading recommendations for you. In previous weeks, we've, of course, given you many recommendations on Russia, on Ukraine, on the war between them. So this week, we're going to look away from the actual conflict, which continues. You know, two weeks of solid bombings on Ukraine. We've seen civilian casualties. But we're going to look now at the opposite end, at the efficacy of sanctions, the impact on the price of oil, and so on. The first is a book that has just come out. It's out of the press called The Economic Weapon. The Rise of Sanctions as a Tool of Modern War. This is by Nicholas Mulder. I haven't read it yet, but it comes well-recommended. Uh, there's an older work, which is quite easy to go through even online, published by uh, double IISS. Double it's a quick read called Sanctions as Grand Strategy by Brendan Taylor. Then there's an author that you must, must read. Pulitzer Prize-winning Daniel Yergin. His latest book, The New Map, Energy, Climate, and the Clash of Nations, really looks at the current crisis much closer and the new choices available with the U.S., with shale, with the U.S.-China conflict, and others. His previous books, written a decade ago, include The Prize, The Epic Quest for Oil, Money, and Power, and The Quest, Energy, Security, and the Remaking of the Modern World. These are very visionary works, which you would really benefit from, I think. Uh, Next, we look at the downside of sanctions. Do they have any impact on the regimes themselves? Whom do they hurt the most? And this has been a question asked when there have been sanctions against so many other countries around the world, especially unilateral ones. So here's one book called Collateral Damage, the Humanitarian Consequences of U.S. Sanctions on Iran. This is by Christy Lamb. Also another book called Invisible War, the United States and the Iraq Sanctions by Joy Gordon. These are both academics. And then there is a UN diplomat who served in Iraq called Hans Christoph von Sponek. A Different Kind of War is the book, The UN Sanctions Regime in Iraq. If you'd like to take a look at how sanctions actually work, there are some very serious books as well. Economic Sanctions, more serious books, I should say. Economic Sanctions in International Law and Practice. This is a Routledge publication, only really for people looking at expertise here. Masahiko Asada wrote this one. And then there's Coercive Cooperation, Explaining Multilateral Economic Sanctions by Lisa Martin. So there's quite a lot of reading over there. We do hope uh, you enjoy that and join us once again here on Worldview from the team here. Thanks for watching.